I'd like to welcome you here this morning. We have a good crowd. We have about 40 joining us on Zoom, so we're glad that you're here as well. And we pray that as we study our topic this morning, that each of you will be benefited. Uh, as always, my goal is to teach. I don't like to lecture, although my kids might argue with that I was pretty good at that. What I want to do is give you facts so that you can use your brain to think about things. That's, that's what all of our responsibility is. And we want to measure that with the Word of God, and we want to train our brains to think with the Word of God. And I want to do that this morning with Bible translations. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's in the King James Version. In the New King James Version, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you read that in the ESV, it says something just a little bit different. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I just want to point out a few differences. It's probably kind of obvious to you, but just a few. And what I'm talking about in Bible translations, because there are hundreds of them floating around out there. They're not all equal, uh, and one is not as good as another. And as we go through this morning, I want to point out some facts. We're going to go back and look at some history, as I've been doing over the last year or so. And at the end, hopefully we'll make some, make some good points. But you'll notice the word inspiration, as we're used to reading it in the King James, is, is translated that way in the New King James. But it says, breathed out by God in the ESV. And we're going to hit some of these later on, some of these differences and why they're different. We see the word perfect in the, in the King James Version, but the word complete in the other two. And we see the word truly furnished, thoroughly equipped, or just plain equipped in one more phrase in those verses. Here's what I've seen in my lifetime. I'm not picking on anybody in particular. I might have said these things myself. But here are some arguments I've heard when people talk about Bible translations. And some of them are going to seem kind of humorous, and in the end, they're really not that humorous. Here's the old standard. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul or Jesus, it was good enough for me. We all know that's a joke, and we probably all jokingly said that at some point in our life. But here are some other ones that I've heard that aren't nearly as funny. Just throw that Bible, pick the translation you don't like in the trash. Why don't you read out of a real Bible? Those are the kinds of arguments I've heard about Bible translations, and the arguments can be made that are a whole lot better than those is the point I want to make. Deflection is a, is a technique that people use when they don't want to have a real discussion. They make harsh statements to kind of make people go, whoa, what are you talking about, and cut off all the discussion. When it's all said and done, I want us to be able to have a discussion, not just about this topic, but about a lot of things. That's how Churches grow together. That's how families grow together, not by making harsh statements that cut off all the conversation, if that makes sense. 
You know what? I want to point out about it. None of these statements are helpful. None of these statements are particularly true. And none of us, none of those statements put me personally or the church in a good light or a good position. So as we talk about things this morning, I hope you'll process it. You'll think about it. I'll say it again at the end. I hope if you've got questions or strong feelings that you'll talk to me, you'll talk to Jay. He and I spent a fair amount of time together as, as I put this together or any of the other elders or other people that are, that are well-versed in translations because it's a lot deeper than these kind of arguments. And I want you to, to know that and I want you to feel comfortable with that. At the end, here's where I want us to all be. That we can have complete confidence that you can read the inspired word of God. Because what man wants us to believe, what I think the devil lays in front of us with all these translations and all these arguments and all this stuff that really accomplishes nothing, they want us to go, the devil says, what does it matter? Can You can't believe any of it. And I don't want that to be the case because we know that God has promised his inspired word. He also has promised preservation. Just because he said it to the apostles doesn't mean it ended there. He's promised us that we can read his true and inspired word. Psalms 12, verses 6 through 7, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. It's a long time, right? Psalm 33 and 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalms 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Matthew 24 and 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Luke 16, verse 17, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 and verse 25, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Does it sound like God has made provision for his word to endure forever and that he's promised us that it will last even down to our time and not just my time, my kids' time and my grandkids' time and however long the earth shall last forever and ever. That's how long God has promised it. So as we go through this and as we end here in a little bit, I want you to be able to hold on to that. God's word is inspired and we've got it. God has promised that his word will endure and we can read it. I want you to think a little bit about the history that we've talked about over the last year or so. And we talked about the church being established in AD 33, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail. And over the next 1,000 years, how the church faded away, that leadership was poor, the Bible wasn't taught to people, uh, power concentrated into just the hands of a few people who used it in a bad way. Starting in about 1300, and we're throwing around a thousand years like it's a few minutes, right? So it took a long time. But starting in about 1300, the idea that that wasn't right began to take hold. And it wasn't just a snap of a finger, but over time, the Reformation began. 
And it took about a couple hundred years for that to really take hold. And really, there was uprisings to the, the religious powers that be, as we've talked about. And the restoration, as we can trace some of the, the, the roots of the Church of Christ back to the restoration, going back to what the New Testament says and trying to pattern our worship and our lives after the New Testament. That yellow range is where I want to talk a little bit, uh, kind of where we land today. How did somebody decide, or why did somebody decide things weren't right? Because <clears throat> here's what had happened, right? There was a hierarchy and a pope. The church had become just like a, a civil government. They were putting armies together, going out and killing people that didn't convert. Uh, they were putting taxes and, and extremely ill-advised and unbiblical teachings on people about religion. That concentrated power caused a lot of corruption. Not going to go back and read all that. You can go pick up Wikipedia and read all the kinds of corruption that were happening. It had created a whole new social and economic class called the priesthood or the clergy that controlled people's access to the Bible. And that's going to get us back to where we're going to be talking about Bible translations. And as a result of hundreds and hundreds of years, the average person could not pick up and answer the question that we just posed in front of us. Can I read the inspired word of God? The average person, the answer to that was no. They could not read the inspired word of God. And it took hundreds of years for them to get in that spot, but very few people had access to the Bible. So in keeping with the Reformation, people questioned the misuse of power, those that did get their hands on the Bible, even some of that clerical class or clergy class. And there became a really big effort to get the Bible into the hands of people in their own language. You know, we're familiar with that. It wasn't too many years ago that somebody came and there was a Bibles for Belize. We're familiar with Van and, and James just getting back from there, but a few years ago, we wanted to get a, a Bible in the hand of every person in Belize. Because why? If a Christian can read the inspired, preserved Word of God, what can they do? They can have salvation of their soul, right? They can know what God really wants for them. And so that's kind of the position, not just these, what we'll consider third world off the map, nearly countries that many of us have never heard of. That's how the whole world was. And certain people said, hey, we need to get the hands and people, the Bible, in their own hands. Wasn't a one-time event. There were a lot of attempts over hundreds of years to get Bibles for people. Great personal sacrifice. It wasn't, it's hard historically to think about the amount of sacrifice that it took because it's easy for me. I left my phone so I wouldn't fidget with it, but if you're like me, you can pop out your iPad or your phone. You can open up whatever your favorite Bible program is, and you've got instant access. I've probably got 30 translations of the Bible on my, on my iPad or my phone. At your house, you may have 20 Bibles. It's so, so close to us, so available to us, that it's hard to put ourselves in that spot. But think about it. People were dying to have a Bible in their hands. And the people that were getting them Bibles were right at the, at the pinpoint of the government, the powers that be killing them, so they couldn't get the Bible in people's hands. That's the environment that was going on. In context of where we've been, remember we talked about Christian leadership several months ago. That's part of keeping the Bible in people's hands. A little bit after that, David talked about, and we're not going to go into the 
the level that he did about the authenticity of the Bible. Not so much translations, but if you remember, he showed a lot of slides about manuscripts that were found and how many copies of manuscripts there were so we could trace the, the way that we got the Bible in our hands. All those are available on YouTube. They're available on SoundCloud if you want to go hear those again. PowerPoints are available if you want those. This goes along with that. God promised us, and then these reformers went to great lengths to get the Bible into their own language. I mean, the fact is some translations were politically or personally biased. But that doesn't deny the fact that God's Word in the hands of the saints of individual Christians like you and me is the best way to ensure the health of the church. And when I go back and look at history, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. So one of the things I want us to learn, we always say this about history, don't repeat the, the mistakes of the past, right? Every single one of us has a responsibility to make sure that the, hand, the Bible in the hands of the saints are put to good use. And that's individual. That's every single one of us. It's not some guy in the pulpit. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the elder's responsibility. Every single one of us has a responsibility to put that Bible, that word that God has preserved and inspired for us, to work in our lives. And that's what these people were trying to, to give the opportunity to others. Obviously, it doesn't do me much good to talk about German or Austrian translations. We're going to concentrate on English translations. But this was happening worldwide. Europe is really where this was going on, so there's a lot of languages. English is the one we're going to follow, obviously. And we're going to talk about a few translations. I was hoping I could get that big enough for you to see. That's English. <laughs> In case you haven't looked at it. And all these, these are pictures I got off of Wikipedia or several other different sites that have information about Bible translations. John Wycliffe was the first person to translate the Bible into English. He didn't do it from the original Hebrew and Greek languages. He actually did it from Latin. It was an intermediate translation. It almost looks like artwork to me, and really it was. Uh, it was hand done. There was no printing press. There were very few copies. It, by very few, I think there's a couple of hundred that survived to now. So there were several hundred copies originally, I'm sure. It wasn't the complete Bible. I'm going to concentrate uh, on that part right there. The, the beginning, this is, this is John chapter 1. That top part is kind of the introduction that you see in some Bibles. That's going to say what, what John's about. That's John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was at God, and God was the Word. It looks pretty cryptic and pretty almost like a foreign language to me, but it was the first step in getting the Bible into English. A lot of things that we hold near and dear, there was no capitalization, you notice. The words are spelled way different. That's about 1390, almost 150 years later, 1526. Probably the most influential Bible translator was Tyndale in 1526. It was the first printed English Bible. So by now, if you remember your history, the Gutenberg Bible was in German. It was the first Bible on a printing press. So now they could typeset it. They could, I think about the old mimeograph machine for you people that are as old as I am. You had to set each page. It was actually with imprinted letters, and they, but they could mass produce the Bible to some extent. And this was the first printed Bible, so almost 500 years ago. 
it was translated from actual Greek and Hebrew. It didn't have the intermediate uh, translation into Latin that the, the, the previous Bible, uh, the Wycliffe Bible had had. And because it could be mass produced, there were thousands and thousands of copies. It heavily influenced later translations. So in general, they took what they had and improved, tried to improve on it. Just a few years after 1526, when his Bible was translated, he and his books were burned. <laughs> now, it didn't get rid of all of them because there were thousands of them. They're still surviving copies. This is John 1, verse 1, not quite as readable, but you'll notice that, again, it's not really the English that we read today, even in 1526. Uh, lots of weird spelling, capitalization again. Translation and writing, because it was not common, was held in such high, high esteem. Look at the typesetting. It's almost like art. Me, I like plain old Arial or sans serif because it's easy letters to read. So when I get in my Bible program, the first thing I do is change it to letters easy to read. Well, they didn't have that option. They had to learn how to read in this script. And that's what they did. Coverdale was just a few years later. And it was distributed even wider than the Tyndale Bible. And you'll notice that that's a picture of one that still exists. It was bound very elegantly. Uh, you'll notice the chain that became, it was chained to a podium in most, most churches. It was revised into the Great Bible is what you're actually seeing a picture of. And the Great Bible didn't mean it was necessarily better or worse than anything else. Great meant it was big. And the goal was to have one of these in every church. So you think about the goal of some of these Missionary efforts is to go get a go get a Bible in the hands of all the people in Russia or Belize or India. Much more modest goal. Just get one in every church building because every church building didn't even have a Bible then. That's the quantities that we're talking about. The Geneva Bible was just a few years later after that. Geneva's in Switzerland. For those of you that need a history or a geography reminder. And if you know your history, you know the two main guys in Geneva, uh, John Calvin, John Knox. They translated the Geneva Bible. They were the main translators. And so we're going to talk a little bit. There was some personal bias that, that went into some of these. It had a Presbyterian slant. So when we think of Calvin and Knox, we think about Calvinism, that's the word we hear in a lot of our lessons, but really they were the precursors to what's the modern-day Presbyterian denomination. And the word Presbyterian means they were focused on, you know, Presbyterian's a word we read all the time or that we translate all the time as elders, a body of elders. And so the big sticking point, remember who's in charge, the Catholic Church. Guess who's in charge of the Catholic Church? The Pope and this, cleric, this, this layer of clergy that held all the power well, they promoted a body of lay elders, elders that weren't in this ruling class. And that kind of became a little bit of the focus, some of the personal bias that, that came out in this Bible versus some of the ones that were translated by people that were closer to the Catholic Church. Here's the thing about uh, the Geneva Bible. Within about 20 years, it was in the average home of the average Christian. That was the common Bible that they mostly had. That's what the average person was reading. Think about it politically now in reforming the Catholic Church who had all this power. Now you've got a Bible in the hands of everybody 
It took 200 years. I mean, we think that this pandemic at nine months, we're about ready to pull our hair out. 200 years, this movement was going on, trying to get a Bible in the hands of people so they could read it. And now you've got the average person reading that in the Bible, it says that there should be multiple elders, not this ruling class. It was the first full-length Bible. So others may, may or may not had all of the Old Testament, some other, ver other chapters missing. Or, or books missing. This was the first full length. It was the first Bible with verses in it. You know, there was no such thing as verses in the original manuscripts. And it looks a lot like when we open up a pew Bible, that's King James version looks a lot like that. The same words, the spelling you'll notice in a couple hundred years has gotten to be more like what we're used to seeing. There's, there's capital letters. There's punctuation that we're used to seeing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that Word was God. So what do you think happened in response to a Bible in the hands of people that said there really is no such thing as this ruling class? What do you think that the church in power responded with? The Bishop's Bible, and guess what it said? It kind of put things in place. The slant on it was, guess who's in charge? The bishop, <laughs> the hierarchy, the ruling class. It was in opposition to the Geneva Bible. As the people in power saw something else kind of taking over, they better have a response. It promoted the hierarchy of bishops that have been growing and getting more and more power over the previous 1,300 years. What's funny is who promoted it was the Church of England. Won't go into all that history, uh, which is the modern day. Uh, there's still a Church of England, but in the United States, that's the Episcopalian Church has a hierarchy very similar to what the Catholic Church does. This was found as the official Bible in most churches in English-speaking countries because the Church of England was the most powerful church at that time, but it wasn't found in people's homes. But in going back to the tradition and the formality, guess what they did? They jumped back to the language, and it looks very similar to some of the older Bibles from a couple hundred years ago, much more formal. Uh, if you... I can't, couldn't get a print big enough for you to see, but you'll see the artistic work in the, in the actual printing of the Bible pages themselves. And go back to the text, a lot of the spelling is the older style, which I guess it's all relative. 1500 is pretty old still, right? <laughs> Relatively old style that was the 1300s that we looked at before. So that's kind of the stage that was set for the King James Bible. You had these two competing Bibles. You had one that was considered so informal, people were almost, uh, one of the things I read said they were making songs in the pubs out of Bible verses was how common, and it was just kind of becoming just another document for people to do something with. You had the formality of the Bishop's Bible, and the King James reign, he was a king in England, came along, and he commissioned the King James Bible to be the official Bible of the Church of England. And the goal was to make it something you could read at home, and it could be read in churches. And so if you go open up a King James Bible, one of the paragraphs in there, and I didn't go pick it out, will say this is good for reading at home and in churches. That was their commission. It used some newly found manuscripts. And again, newly is uh, relative, but they didn't go from the secondary translations of the Latin like, some, like the Wycliffe did 300 years prior to that. They had found other Greek and Hebrew manuscripts 
uh, from the time the Tyndale Bible was written just 50 or 60 years earlier, and they used those. And it replaced the Bishop's Bible in churches, uh, the Geneva Bible at home. From 1615, from the time it was translated and published until 1769, there were hundreds of revisions of the King James Bible. I didn't go pull all those out. Lots of people did lots of things revising it to make it more readable, to make it more accurate. What we're used to reading in our pews was a combined effort from the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge, two, two universities in, in England that have been around for a long time. Latrice's telling me stories about going and visiting on the campus of Cambridge University when they were in England one time, if I remember right. And uh, they took on a project to standardize all these hundreds of revisions that had happened in the years from 1615 to 1769. And so if I, when I was a kid, I don't remember if these do or not, I didn't open it up. There was a lot of the, the title page would talk about the University of Oxford or the University of Cambridge. And I always wondered why that was true. Well, that's because that's the project that went together to put those together for the 1769 version that we read. And you'll see if you talk to or you do much reading in the religious world, you'll see some 1611 only churches, not so many churches of Christ. There's a number of Baptist churches in certain spots that are 1611 version only. They're reading that Bible that we showed a little bit earlier that's spelling like we don't spell and words that we don't use even more so than the King James Bible. We read for the most part, uh, these in our pews are 1769 reversion, 1769 revision. Again, just a few differences. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, just to kind of show you the differences. In 1611, though I speak, and I'm not going to read it all, I'm going to let you read it. You'll see there's spellings where there's lots of extra letters. You'll see uh, in that first line, they don't use the word and, they use the symbol for the and sign, the ampersand. You'll notice there's no V's. A lot of it's type setting. They just, there weren't, there, there wasn't V's in the English alphabet in 1611. And when you look at 1769, like our version that we read, obviously you're familiar with that because that's what you have seen most of your lifetime probably. There's 11 changes of spelling between those two, two passages. There's 16 different typesetting, mostly the U and the V. And there's a few word changes. And again, my, my point in this you may think, where is he going weaving through all these? Some of it's just historical, but more than just being interesting, I want, want all of us to understand what we're reading. Here, here's the dilemma in anything that's forever. I grew up, um, and my kids were a little bit different. They thought, I thought the only songbook you could sing out of was Sacred, sacred Selections because that's what I was born reading or singing out of. And when I went to college, that's what we were singing out of. And to this day, I can still see Benny Campbell leading 344 because that's the song that stuck in my mind because it, it's, it's what I was used to. It's it was tradition. Now, my kids think uh, gospel songs and hymns, the blue books, and I guess we had maroon ones here. I had blue ones at my house. That's all they knew. And so when we changed songbooks three or four times in the last, I guess three times in the last 15 years, I guess, that's a relatively new phenomenon, and, and I just thought Sacred Selections was the only songbook you could sing out of. 
I want you to know where, or at least have some idea, this is in 45 minutes, very barely touches the surface, to know kind of what's going on. So when you have a conversation with somebody, you've got a few facts. You've got a place to go, to go, to go look. Since 1769, King James Bible has been used almost exclusively in Protestant churches. So that's anything that's not Catholic. There have been many individual translations over the years, but the King James Version has withstood the test of time and remains popular to this day. Here's some statistics just to kind of show that and maybe how things fit in. So this is just one booksellers organization, not even necessarily the biggest, but here are the five biggest translations that they sell. So this means a bookstore that's associated with this group sells them. And I didn't have relative quantities, but they're, they're kind of in order. New International Version, New King James Version, New Living Translation, New King James Version, and English Standard Version. If I flip to the other side in a poll of what was the most read Bible by a similar group of people, and I think this was from 2014, about 55% of the people polled read the King James Version and 20% the New International, and you can kind of go down, the, go down the list as they get smaller and smaller. And I think in this one, the New King James, there may be a couple other King James revisions that are lumped in with that one as well, but you'll see it's still very, very much the Red Bible. So, so where are we as you go to pick a Bible? Is one just as good as another? Do I just take my pick of these poles and go grab one? Well, I want to give you some information so you can make a decision that's not just because that's what my mother did or that I don't just pop off and say, well, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. Or why don't you just read a real Bible? <laughs> Here's some things to think about and things to know as you look at Bible translation. There are hundreds of them. One for every day of the week. And anybody that can translate and, and get on Amazon can post one for sale, right? Is one as good as another, and how do you decide? So I want to spend some time. We're going to spend some time on this chart, and I want to just kind of lay it out for you. There's a lot of information. Some of it's small. You can't really see it, but I think you can see what you need to. There's a continuum, a range of the way that Bibles are translated. Word for word is one way that Bibles are translated, and we'll talk a little bit about this. A little bit further to interpreting, I guess, if you want to say it, is the idea of a Bible taking the original Greek and Hebrew and trying to get the thoughts and doing it thought for thought. And finally, there's something called a paraphrase where somebody or a group of people read it and rewrite it without really a lot of thought to the original words in their own language, trying to get the same, what they think is the same meaning across. And so you've got a continuum. Not everyone falls neatly into every single one of these categories, but that's the three broad categories. Word for word, literal is another way that you might think about that. It stays as close as possible to the words and phrases used in the original language. When possible, it uses a single English word for each Hebrew or Greek word. Doesn't add a lot of words. That keeps the historical distance. So the words that we read are very similar to the words that they would have read. They don't change illustrations into modern illustrations. It uses the same illustration that, the, the, that was recorded in the manuscript. The reason that's good, it keeps the translator's opinion at a minimum. 
This word means this, and this word means that. It's literal as much as possible. The downside to that is it can be a little more difficult to read because the average reader may not know the historical references. I'm going to go all the way to the other side. I guess it was that side of the chart for the paraphrase. With a paraphrase, there's little attempt to maintain the, the structure and word use that the originals had. It's done on purpose to remove that historical view of it so that it seems like it's culturally re relevant uh, today, more relevant to the, to the modern day. Tend to be easier to read for a person that hasn't read the Bible before. The downside is that when there's more interpretation by a translator, guess what? There's greater opportunity for their opinion and for that to cause differences from the original. And so it's got a downside, a big downside. So let's go back to word for word. So you see kind of the two ends of that spectrum. Thought for thought, I didn't put a slide up for that. It's kind of in between. So if you want to go to word for word, the most word for word you can get is called an interlinear. means within the lines. And here's kind of what an interlinear looks like. It puts the Greek or the Hebrew, in this case the Greek, but see the light gray where it says proton? And has a bunch of, that's Greek in all the gray, every other line. Above it is the word, is the English word for that Greek word. So this is the layman's way that doesn't understand Greek. That's the way I can go see, well, the Greek word, if you say it proton, I don't know how to say it, that's how I'll say it today, means all. Some of the words I recognized, if you go over three or four and you see the word under prophecy, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Well, it makes sense. That's the Greek word for prophecy because it looks like prophecy to me, right? So that's interlinear. That is about as word for word as it gets. That's the Greek manuscript with the English word above it. Some things to notice about that. I just picked out one example. There's missing words, or at least missing Greek words. I guess you could flip that around and say there's extra English words. <laughs> And you look on the Greek and there's no punctuation. Do you know that in Greek and Hebrew, there's no periods, no commas, no semicolons, no anything. It's all just this. If, if, she went, if, the, if the writers went to Miss Young's junior English class that I went to, they would have had red all over their paper. There was no such thing as punctuation. So to get it into English, the translators also have to put punctuation in there. And so you'll see kind of laid up in, a, in the most literal sense that you can lay up a Bible to the original, you can kind of see how that looks. <clears throat> That's not the most convenient to read, trying to make sentence, sense of all of that. So word for words, try to, translations try to be as word for word as they can, but you can't be 100% word for word. And so there's a group, and maybe you can see those, but the Bibles that we read out of, particularly the King James, a lot of people read out of New King James or ESV, uh, you'll see those in that area. They make an attempt, and I don't know exactly the methodology they use, that this is a continuum. So they will say the interlinear is the most word-for-word -word that I just showed you. And they'll put these other translations up and say, well, they're relatively this much more word for word. I don't know that I'm not holding that up as a standard, but as a, as a whole, that's how they're translated. 
there's a reason why we prefer word for word because it takes the translator's opinions out of it. But here's something about word for word. Just so you I mean, I want the facts to be out there. Translators added words for meaning. I'm going to show some verse here in just a minute. Somebody, I won't mention names, told me just last week that they were 50 years old before they realized what the italics in a King James Bible meant. And maybe that's you. The italics in a King James Bible aren't there for emphasis. They're there because those don't translate from a Greek word. They've been added by the translator to help us have an understanding of what's going on. Translators choose what synonym to use. I was a master of opening up a thesaurus because the teacher always thought the wording was too plain. So you could open up a thesaurus. And those of you that are teachers probably could tell which kids opened up the thesaurus because it was words we never used to speak. But we could find all sorts of different words to say the same thing. But somebody has to choose what word to use. They also have to use some judgment in dealing with figurative language. And I will show you a couple of those. But here's what, what I really want you to get across. They try to inject as little personal interpretation as possible. Because what do we want? We want to use our heads in doing what God, or accepting what God has promised us. Inspired word and preserved word. I don't need writer's opinions. I want God's inspired and preserved word to, words to be able to read. <clears throat> if you were to open your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, I think I highlighted them all. But all the yellow highlights are the italicized, word in a, italicized words in a King James Version. They were added in there to help us read it smoother, to make it flow better. Sometimes to point out meaning, to make sure that meaning got across. <clears throat> And you can generally figure that out, but if below, I took the words out that were italicized. And so knowing this first, that no prophecy scripture is private, you can see how the additional words make those Greek words flow better, what the original Greek words were. So that's what I mean by a word for word is not exactly word for word. Here's the illustration of what synonym kind of makes sense. There's multiple words that mean the same thing, and some words we're more familiar with than others. So in that same reading, the word spake is not really a common modern word anymore. So the King James Version has the word spake because that was common in 1769, 240 years ago, the new King James uses the more common word spoke, which is what you would learn if you were going to English class now, as does the ESV. So they choose which synonym, move, move, carried along <clears throat> in that particular uh, passage. The, what I mean by they choose sometimes on figurative language what words to use. <clears throat> in 2 Timothy 3 and 16, we're very familiar with all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We read it just a little bit earlier. The New King James uses that same wording, but the ESV uses something that almost doesn't seem like the same. All scripture is breathed out by God. 
And here's what I mean by the, the translator decides what to do with figurative language sometimes. The actual word in Greek literally means God breathed. So if you're going to be exactly word for word, you would say the word is God breathed. So, but the, the translators of King James and New King James thought it made more sense for the reader if they helped them with the, the literal or the figurative translation that God breathed really means inspired. So it, it's, the, it's the interpretation we would have got if we read God breathed because we know he didn't literally breathe it out. He spoke it, and it means inspired, but that's what I mean by uh, the, the translator has to deal with the word, uh, the figurative language in the original and getting it to a point that we can understand it. <clears throat> if you move over on the chart to the thought for thought, it adds a little bit more interpretation by the translator. And there's a number of them, probably the most common, I'm going to guess 25 years ago, it made its way into lots of churches of Christ. So that's why it probably is on our radar more than lots of things. The New International Version. Since then, there's been a couple of revisions of it that have a little bit different names. Uh, and you can see the language gets more modern, but it adds a little bit more interpretation to it, going back to the first, the Second Timothy 1 verse that, that I read before. Sounds more modern. It's more words. It might be more easily understood by people who aren't familiar with literal translations. I, I was raised my whole life reading some of the figures of speech in the King James Bible, as were most all of us. And we spent a lot of time learning about those, those figures of speech or those historical things. Someone who's never opened up a Bible before, that may be harder for them to do. Paraphrase. Uh, I'll put a couple, of, a couple of different paraphrases up there. The Living Bible is one that we hear a lot about. For no prophecy recorded in Scripture was ever thought up by the prophet himself. The message even may be a little more informal or a little looser, if you want to think about it that way. The main thing to keep in mind is that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of private opinion. And here's what to keep in mind. Paraphrase means... It's been rephrased in the writer or the translator's opinion. They don't make bones about that they are trying to go back to the original words. They're trying to rephrase it in a way that they think gets the meaning across. Well, it's what they think. That's why it's called a paraphrase. doesn't sound like the Bible to those of us that are used to reading the Bible. So here's where I, I want to get us all to as we kind of try to wrap things up. Use a word-for-word -word translation. There's a reason why we've got King James Bibles in the pews. There's a reason why when you see other versions up, King James, New King James, or ESV, why those sound very similar, because they're using the same translating technique, if you want to think about it that way, so that we get the best representation of the original writer's language. We all have an individual responsibility to read it and to study it. And it's my job, your job as individuals to go understand. If I start with what's closest to the, uh, the original, then I can decide. If I'm skipping a bunch of steps and going with what these guys think about it, 
I've missed out and given lots of room for there to be other things that get thrown in there that I have no idea what they are. And so word for word, I can decide, I can study those words, I can decide what they mean in conjunction with lots of other things. It's the best type of translation to use for a primary source of study. What about these thought-for-thought thought and paraphrase translations? It's kind of a dilemma. And, and I'll say in the last week, I've heard the very words of some of the things that I said, this aren't, these aren't very good arguments. I've heard those <laughs> with my own ears this week. Why don't you read out of a real Bible? <laughs> um, he, he, and this is true for lots of things when we talk about to people that are new 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 people to the Bible that don't understand the Bible. What Jay told me is he doesn't insist that pick person X. Well, you've got to open up my version of the Bible, the King James or the New King, whatever I'm studying, before I can teach you the gospel. He teaches them the gospel. There's time for the other. But here's what, because a lot of people are reading these. They don't know what we know. They haven't gone through any kind of history like this. They don't understand the importance of why do we want to be word for word? How do we access God's promise of inspiration and God's promise of preservation? It says Bible on the front, right? So I'll just read it. Well, that can be taught, but what's the most important thing? The gospel. So let's teach them the gospel. But what's the place for these? It's not to bash people over the head or tell them they're stupid because they read one. Just not ever going to be helpful. And if we, in words or deeds or attitudes, teach that to our children, guess what's going to happen when they go study the Bible with people in college? And they open up a living Bible in a Bible study with somebody that's not a Christian. And they go, man, what are you reading? That's not even a real Bible. <laughs> what does that do to our children? We've just lost an opportunity to study the Bible with somebody who might be the next Apostle Paul. But we didn't equip our children to use logic and reason. We taught them to divert and call people stupid because they don't know what we know. So be careful about that. What place can we use them? Maybe they're useful as a commentary. A lot of times I'll put up six translations. It's easy to do on the computer or your phone now, right? And you can see what they need. And sometimes it's, it's useful to see that. But it's not my primary source. Should never, I don't think, ever be a primary source. Be very careful if that's what you use as your primary source because there, there is a lot of, and, and for those of you that have studied this a lot, you'll know I didn't go into any depth, of, any depth into a lot of the questions about all these other types of translations. There just wasn't time. But there's reasons why you want to use a word for word as a primary source. And again, don't feel like you've got to convert someone to a word-for-word word or a King James Bible before you can teach them the gospel. So in summary, where do we want to get with all of this? Just where I started. You can have confidence that you can read the inspired Word of God. Not because I said it, not because I had a lesson, because God promised it. He promised us that His Word would be inspired and preserved for us. He delivered inspiration. We've read 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 a number of times in a few different translations. All Scripture is inspired 
are given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we can be perfect, not without fault, but we can be complete. We can know exactly what God wants us to do. We can be throughly furnished. A word, if you, when I put the King James Version throughly up there, guess what? I got a red line in my spell check because throughly is not even a, a current English word. We can be throughly furnished, or in our words, we can be thoroughly equipped. We can have the tools in our hands to do every good work. It's inspired. We can do every good work, but we've got to read it. God promised and delivered preservation. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures. It stays. It hangs around. It's there forever for all generations. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God that lives and abides forever. But the word of the Lord endures forever. We've got God's word. We can read it and we can know it. Now we need to go out and do that. Let's read it and know it and become equipped to do every good work. Hopefully you found our study interesting this morning. I encourage you, if you've got questions or strong feelings, there's all sorts of things. Some of you may be going, wow, that's interesting, but what does it have to do with me? Hopefully you picked up something. But if you've got strong feelings, my goal with this topic or any other topic is not to come in here and preach at you. It's to be able to have a conversation. And I'll guarantee that if you want a conversation with one of the elders, with me personally, that you'll get a conversation. It won't be, it won't be an unpleasant uh, situation when it comes to talking about stuff like this. So that concludes my thoughts for this morning. If you're subject to the gospel in any way, if you've been previously taught and would like to be baptized, we would like to assist you with that. If you would like the prayers of church, please come while we stand and sing.